Welcome to Academically Speaking. This podcast is designed to provide our listeners with an opportunity to engage with subjects and topics related to student academic success. How we think and what we do is important to how we become citizens of this country and of the world. Welcome to Academically Speaking. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean for the College of Undergraduate Studies here at the University of Central Florida. And in another episode of Celebrating Faculty, um, we are featuring today Dr. Richard Plate. In our last episode, we had the wonderful opportunity to feature Dr. Leah Gaines, who shared much of her experiences um, coming into the, the academic space and becoming a college professor. And so today we have Dr. Richard Plate, who joined the University of Central Florida in August of 2016 as a lecturer in environmental studies and interdisciplinary studies. Dr. Plate is a Central Florida native who holds a PhD in interdisciplinary ecology from the University of Florida and has degrees uh, in English and chemical engineering from Clemson University in South Carolina. He has taught courses in environmental science, environmental ethics and politics, marine resource management and writing. He has authored numerous articles on human dimensions of natural resource management and co-authored a textbook on sustainability. Dr. Plate's research focuses on how people learn and make decisions about complex social ecological systems. Welcome, Dr. Plate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, and we're happy to have you on this particular episode of our podcast as we continue to celebrate faculty in the College of Undergraduate Studies. So just to get us started, tell us a little bit more about your background. We know that you uh, uh, went to that institution up the road from us uh, for your PhD in interdisciplinary ecology, which I find fascinating. But what I find more fascinating is that you have degrees in English and chemical engineering. So th that's quite the combination. So tell us a little bit more about your academic background. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a bit of a mixed bag there. Um, I knew fairly early on that I wanted to do something working on environmental challenges. And uh, my dad was an engineer, and I think so engineering just seemed to be like the best kind of first. I didn't really have much direction beyond, okay, I wanted to be addressing environmental issues. So uh, at, at Clemson, they didn't have environmental engineering at the undergraduate level, so chemical engineering was kind of the next closest thing. And so I ended up in, in that. The summer before my senior year uh, in, in my undergraduate program there, I worked at an environmental consulting firm and got to see what the environmental engineers do at an environmental consulting firm and knew pretty, had a pretty solid feel that I did not want to be doing what, what they were doing. But I was three years into a four-year degree. Um, it's not a bad degree to have, so I went ahead and finished that and um, took a few years, frankly. I, I was traveling, I ended up getting a Fulbright before going back to, my, um, back to the master's program, and I was able to, to 
yeah, travel a bit, do a bit of research, uh, or, or assisting with research anyway. And uh, the the English, I've just I've always enjoyed reading and writing. Um, I, I have come to see it now. It's hard to know, right? A, a lot of the when you're looking back at the decisions you've made, mm -hmm. you can find a, a sort of meaning to them and a symmetry that probably wasn't there as you were muddling your way through along the way. But at this point, I really do look at um, my, my experience in English. So again, at the time, I think I really, I just loved reading, uh, reading books, uh, writing about them, talking about them. And uh, I still do see stories whether it's fiction, whether it's cultural stories, um, you know, narratives around narratives around narratives that have a large impact on why we do the things that we do. You know, we, we answer questions like, you know, what does it mean to have a good life or be a good person or be striving for this or that within the context of our own personal stories and then sort of, um, you know, rippling out from there to much broader and broader scale stories. So. Um, so largely, I think, you know, the most interesting books to me, I guess, and I'm thinking fiction now, mm -hmm. are the ones that, that have really rich characters that really allow you to, to um, vicariously experience a lot of the, their kind of inner workings and you know, seeing the wheels turning kind of in their minds at why they're doing what they're doing. And I really enjoyed that part of it. So for me, the doctoral program, which is, it's the graduate program at UF is set up very similarly to our environmental studies program here in that there are some core courses and then you, you can take from a, a large range of courses. So you can, to a large degree, figure out, you know, you've got a very big umbrella to work within. Mm -hmm. So my focus was largely on uh, more of the social side of things, as you said, kind of how people think about environmental systems. But I had folks in class with me who were, you know, doing research on nocturnal animals eating in Paraguay kind of thing. So it was really, you know, broad range, all working with under this umbrella of environment. And um, for me, what that program did was allowed me to combine some of my kind of technical background mm -hmm. with my more sort of, I guess, humanities or social science um, aspects in terms of how we think and, and put those together uh, in a way that for me, fits really well now. And I think actually, in some ways, you know, having a weird background um, makes you not that great a fit for lots of jobs, but the perfect fit for those jobs that you really want to get. And, and I feel like that's how I, that's how I find, that's how I feel here at, at UCF anyway. That's, that's a really interesting background. And, and the thing that really caught my attention was knowing more about this notion of interdisciplinary ecology and sort of being in a program where there's uh, some core or foundational ideas, but then there are opportunities to explore other things under some particular perspective or viewpoint uh, in the context of that. And so um, when we think about interdisciplinary ecology, if you had to describe it to your garden variety, run-of-the-mill, undergraduate student, how would you describe that particular field of study? Yeah, it, it's funny. They, so it was a fairly new program when I started. And there were, and I just heard about these arguments that happened before I um, got there, but they were arguing about what to call the program. And um, one of the sort of premier ecologists at the university who was, you know, kind of pushing for this program thought that interdisciplinary ecology 
was essentially a redundancy. He thought it would make them look stupid by having this sort of redundant, you know, because ecology is inherently interdisciplinary, right? But how many people know that? And, and that's it. And, and I take his point, but I think a lot of people, even if they think of ecology as interdisciplinary, they think of it as like chemistry, biology, um, you know, they think of it as still sort of the, the natural mm -hmm. sciences kind of thing. And so for me, I think that that possible redundancy is actually necessary to um, signal that we're talking about broad interdisciplinarity. So, so to get back to um, directly answering your question, the, I would describe it as we make decisions about environmental systems all the time in terms of what we're gonna buy uh, for our groceries, how we're gonna run our own households, um, you know, who we're gonna vote for, um, policies at the you know, city and state level. Um, affecting you know, water, affecting how we're going to um, prepare for hurricanes in Florida, mm -hmm. all of these things. And, and certainly those kind of natural sciences you know, play a large role in that, mm -hmm. but there's so much else that gets sort of baked into those decisions um, when it comes to you know, emotions and, and um, it, relationships and institutions and all of these things. So, so interdisciplinary ecology and really, and this is kind of how I describe environmental studies as well as a, as a broad label for a field, are, um, you know, can encompass all of that, all of those. So I, I tend to see it all in terms of um, you know, different ways of looking at issues to help us make decisions. And we need those different disciplines and we need to integrate insights from those different disciplines mm -hmm. in order to really um, feel like we're addressing those issues in a, in a nuanced and, and you know, fuller understanding than otherwise. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And so I have a background in interdisciplinary studies for my master's degree. And one of the things that I found interesting about that was that you could take a topic and basically look at it from a variety of different viewpoints and gain different meanings on that topic, right? And so for instance, um, I'll use as myself as, a, as an example, um, when my niece was living with me and in high school, I really would have preferred to have her go to school close to campus because that meant driving one vehicle, taking her to school, going to work, and at the end of the school day, she could either walk to the office or I could pick her up from school and drive back home. Uh -huh. And I knew that the ecological impact of doing that would mean that I'd have a smaller carbon footprint, I'd spend less money on gas, so forth and so on. But on the other side of it, the school that was closest to our home had a better theater program for her. So my concern was, well, that means she's getting on the bus that has a bunch of students on it, and she's allergic to certain things, and the bus is spewing all kinds of fuel out, and then if she has something after school, I still have to pick her up in my car and take her home. And I'm like, this is absolutely bananas. Now, it ended up being the best thing for her, but that broadened my carbon footprint from maybe 10% to 50%, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. So we make these ecological decisions right. every day without being aware of it, right? Right, right, right exactly, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your research, your current research, and some of the things that you're working on now. Yeah, so um, lately, most recently, I've been focused, so my, my teaching drives a lot of my research mm -hmm. now. So um, I've been playing a little bit with, so my, my early research was on 
um, complexity and systems thinking and how teaching, so systems thinking I describe is kind of like critical thinking skills for understanding complexity, complex systems like ecosystems, like yes. societies. And um, so how, if we can learn those skills, does that improve people's ability to understand environmental systems? And that was really what drove my, my early research mm -hmm. with my dissertation. And I've gotten back to that a little bit, um, looking at, so I do teach a fair amount of systems thinking, and now resilience is sort of the, resilience thinking is very similar. Um, mm -hmm. it, it just kind of coined it as some, you know, a new, something new to call it, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I do a fair amount of that in one of the courses that I teach. So I'm looking at developing online tools to see how that improves systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that really fell out of um, a different course that I teach, a uh, capstone course, is just looking at um, the concept of hope uh, within the context of sustainability and some of our um, you know, more challenging environmental issues and the directions that they're going and, and looking at um, particularly how students who plan to have a career addressing environmental issues, how do they frame hope and, how, and what tools can we offer mm -hmm. in order to, to make them personally resilient through those careers? And I would uh, be so bold as to say that those of us who engage in sustainability practices are signaling our levels of hope or aspirations of hope um, that something good will come out of those practices, right? Right, right, yeah, and on some level, right, we, just about everything we do is, has some sort of future focus which has hope layered in there. I guess what's, what's interesting about it to me is, is um, when, you, when you juxtapose it with goal setting. So with goal setting, often the more effective goals are the ones that, you, that are very specific, right, because then you've got something to visualize. So, so there's that on one side of it. In the context of hope, there's, you know, it's, it's a term that can mean so many different things and have so many different layers. And so there's hope in a very specific outcome. And then there's sort of a hope as almost an attitude, a perspective I'm taking on. So kind of whatever happens, you know, I'm still going to be working toward a better future than if I wasn't working toward, again, you know, to address whatever the issues are. And, and I guess it's that second one. The, the first one honestly kind of scares me a little bit um, when we talk about some of the goals staying within two degrees Celsius in terms of climate change. Um, that, you know, I, I don't know where I'd put my money on that one yeah. in terms of those two degrees. Um, you know, I would suspect we're going to be beyond those two degrees, but I think being a little bit beyond those two degrees is way better than being way beyond those two degrees. So I would hate to have goals become a source of cynicism if we don't, you know, once we right. don't meet those, then what do you do with your career, behavior, that kind of thing. And, and it's interesting because I remember seeing something on the news one day where they were talking about how air quality and water quality and um, other sort of environmental factors were experiencing signs of benefits in the midst of the pandemic because people weren't driving cars mm -hmm. and all kinds of other things were happening. And so now we have environmentalists who are saying, now we know what we should do if we want to improve the environment because we didn't have airplanes in the sky, we didn't have cars mm -hmm. driving, and we saw all these things starting to change almost rapidly, even in the first two weeks 
that we were shut down that we thought were going to be just right, two right, weeks, sure, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's this whole notion of hope that's also built on unexpected outcomes of, of situations that might not have seemed hopeful, right? Right, right, exactly, yeah. So when you started talking about your research, the first thing you said was that much of your research is predicated or attached to your teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm interested to know why you like teaching and, so, and, and talk more about some of the things that you're currently teaching. Yeah, um, gosh, I've, just, I've always liked being in a classroom and interacting with students. I really think, uh, yeah, I, I honestly, and I don't, I don't suggest that this should be the decision rubric for students necessarily going through their own paths, but I didn't necessarily know with any of my degrees what I really wanted to do with it exactly upon finishing it. What I knew was that this is a really interesting thing that I want to play with for a while, really interesting you know, idea or set of ideas or, or what have you. Um, so I, I think I just really like... Um, you know, working with these sort of difficult concepts and ideas and chewing on them with other people and, and really getting into kind of a you know, much more nuanced understanding of, of these um, and how these could play out in, in the context of, of real-world dynamics. So, um, you know, eventually I, I had the PhD and they were kind of like, well, you got to start teaching more now if you want to stay a part of this atmosphere. And, and, and that's what I've done. And I've, and I've done a, a lot of different topics. Um, my first job coming out of my doctorate, I was at a field school in Turks and Caicos Islands looking at marine resource management um, down there. And the, the, the one common you know, denominator is just that interaction with students. You can throw me into lots of different situations. And if, you know, if, I, know, if I know the content or I can learn the content, um, then I'm probably going to do okay um, just building up a rapport with the students. That's what I really kind of enjoy mm-hmm. about it. So what are you currently teaching that especially, I'm, I'm especially interested in knowing about something that you're currently teaching that you're finding fascinating or that's turning out much differently than what you expected? Um, well, you know, I, so I just designed, uh, developed a new course last fall. So this is the second uh, time we're running it now called Science of Sustainability. And um, we developed it because we wanted to make sure that our students had a really strong um, kind of scientific background um, with their degree. And, uh, you know, I have to say again, like much of my, I, I know more sort of, uh, you know, what we might think of as biological ecology than your typical social scientist probably does, because I do deal a little bit more with that. Um, but again, my, my research has you know, almost wholly been on the social side of it. So um, what I ended up doing was taking, taking um, what was like one or two weeks of a course, mm-hmm. uh, of, a, of a survey course or, or foundations course, mm-hmm. and I pulled that and then just expanded that into kind of what do I really want to be able to say about this and what do I really want students to know in terms of addressing a lot of misconceptions, in terms of just understanding, in this case, how atoms and molecules are moving around and how that affects our lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that's been a real joy and a real learning experience in many ways to, to get into those. And, and I really have learned a lot from um, just engaging with that material in a way that I, more deeply, I guess I should say, than I ever had before. And now it's really fun. So I'm using the, uh, our new tool, uh, Yellow Dig, just mm-hmm. online discussion tool. And, and 
what that does that our other tool, at least ones that I've used, haven't done before, is allows for a uh, for students to have more autonomy over the topics that they're going to discuss with each other, and so seeing where they go, you know, how they apply these kinds of um, scientific ideas or concepts or mental models, and you know how they use them to interpret kind of local news stories and things like that or contemporary stories, um, has just been a real a real joy. So we know that there's this one fabulous course that you are teaching uh, on the science of sustainability uh, that's in the environmental studies program. So tell us more about the environmental studies degree program and what it's designed to do and what opportunities uh, students might have, excuse me, um, in relationship to uh, engaging in a major like environmental studies. Yeah, I, the way, the purpose that I see for our degree, and really we have two tracks that students can um, take. We have communication and planning, and we have the sciences. And so all students will take the same set of core courses, including that science and sustainability course that I mentioned. And then depending on the track, they'll focus more on, again, those kind of natural sciences or focus more on, on communication, policy, that kind of thing. On whichever side they take, though, I see the goal as um, they will be the, the leaders in driving productive conversations about the types of environmental challenges that, that we're facing right now. And to be able to do that, so some of them might be closer to the, you know, taking soil samples and water samples and chemical analysis, but they still, so even those folks, you, you need to, you know, know why are you asking the questions that you're asking in your research? Environmental studies is a very uh, problem-driven yeah. type of, you know, it's, it's very little of it. It's just, mm -hmm. just curiosity, purely for curiosity's sake. education, we would call um, that action. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So... More ascent-oriented rather than deficit-oriented. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. Ascent-oriented? Asset. Oh, asset-oriented, okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... So getting to think about that, right? How, what role is, how is this information that I'm collecting going to be useful later? And by whom um, can it be used by? And then on the, on the communication and planning, I see that as a lot of interpretation there, right? A lot of being able to, to be that link between the kind of find the data on the one hand, scientific data, and, and people understanding that and putting expressing it or, or, you know, allowing people to consume it in a way that's going to be meaningful to them, um, what they can understand, what matters to them, that kind of stuff. And then vice versa, being able to uh, have that communication go the other way so that um, to some degree anyway, it is some of those kind of general and public concerns that are driving some of that research as well. Okay. So, you know, and sort of shifting the conversation just slightly, um, I want to talk about the way in which we're engaged as a society in, in general. And it seems that as a, as a society, we are having a difficult time discussing our views with those with viewpoints that are different from our own. You know, we're in this moment now where if we disagree with someone, it becomes automatically contentious as opposed mm -hmm. to learning how to 
disagree respectfully with people and being appreciative of other people's viewpoints, even if they are different from your own. So why is it important for environmental studies majors to, to be able to contribute to or to lead productive discussions about how to address environmental challenges? A lot of our environmental issues uh, touch very personal parts of our lives. So we, we end up with a lot of stakeholders that are involved in these conversations that are coming at these issues from vastly different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I try to encourage our students to view, so we tend to view someone with a vastly different perspective than our own as a barrier of some kind, right? Is like, a, no, I, I know how this all works, I get it, and this person needs to get it, and then we can all move on. That, that's our, often our go-to kind of approach. Right. And I try to encourage our students to see, you know, people like, people who, again, have these vastly different views from their own as resources. Because I, I take it from the assumption of um, our own blind spots, that we all have blind spots, that, you know, we all have limited understanding, no matter how long we've been um, studying or researching a particular topic, we're always coming at it from, from our perspective and we're not going to see everything. And by definition, those folks who have that vastly different perspective than yours, mm -hmm. they're seeing things differently. And, and I, I try to you know, have students think more in terms of what can I learn from this person mm -hmm. rather than how can I browbeat this person into believing exactly what I believe. And it doesn't mean I want students to be you know, gullible or easily swayable, but certainly to um, have a more nuanced understanding uh, in, in lots of ways, partly because I think they can learn more about the system that way, but also on a purely, uh, I don't know, almost even a Machiavellian level, mm -hmm. if, if your end goal is to get that person behaving differently than they're behaving now, mm -hmm. then it behooves one to really try to understand why they're behaving the way they're behaving Precisely. now. And so I, I do an exercise with students in my foundations class where they have to pick... Um, environmental issue that they care deeply about, identify a specific behavior within the context of that issue that is just like the worst thing you can think of doing in, in terms of like acting responsibly within the context of that issue. And then I, I have them come up with a character, um, a realistic person, nuanced. They can't use stupid or selfish. They have to push beyond the kind of mm -hmm. labels we want to put on people who don't agree mm -hmm. um, with what we think. And they have to come up with, why is this person behaving this way? Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of approach helps us to avoid villainizing people mm -hmm. and really get at, well, what do we agree on? Because you spend so much time uh, focused on our points of disagreement mm -hmm. and um, often don't take enough time to go, well, let's, let's look at where the common ground is first. And then that helps us to identify the specific point of contention that we have here, and then let's try to manage through, you know, through that now that we've got this understanding. And um, I just think, I think COVID-19 um, showed a lot of people how, so again, it's, a, it's an issue that involved you know, science, a lot of fairly new science, mm -hmm. a lot of policy things, a lot of very personal decisions. And I think everyone got to see how messy those 
kinds of discussions yeah, can absolutely. be. And environmental context, we've been dealing with that kind of stuff for decades, mm -hmm. um, similar dynamics of those situations. So, so being able to, to manage those and to try to, not to be able to come up with all the answers, because the answers we're going to be able, have to come up with along the way, and those might change as we learn more and what have you. But being able to, to you know, foster those relationships that are going to help us navigate mm -hmm. those challenges now and into the future is where I think our, our students can really um, find their niche. Yeah, and that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I couldn't help but think about um, something I had seen on TV. I'm a huge Downton Abbey fan. Okay. Um, <laughs> and um, I know it's kind of quirky, but, you know, I'm that nerdy professor that watches <laughs> all the period pieces, right? And I remember seeing an, an episode uh, early on in the series where Matthew Crawley who is the heir to uh, Downton Abbey in the, in the estate, uh, comes into the, the town and um, they assign him a butler and all of the other accoutrements of aristocratic living. And he's a middle-class guy. He's a lawyer who's used to dressing himself and not having to dress in a tuxedo and tails for dinner and all of those things, right? And he's just pushing it away and he's, you know, wagging his finger at Lloyd Grantham, like this is a waste of time and money and blah, 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 and so forth and so on. And the poor guy who's assigned to him as a butler um, is frustrated because he can't do his job because this guy is pushing away at all of these things. And the conversation that Lloyd Grantham has with Matthew Crawley is, you know, it's not that we think all these things are must haves. It's about the fact that the people who serve in these roles, they have a purpose. They want some, they want to feel like they're useful. Mm -hmm. And if we get rid of them, they no longer feel like they're useful. Now, did it mean that Lord Grantham or Matthew Crowley were right or wrong? No, it was just a different perspective on that kind of life and that lifestyle, right? And so being able to help our students understand that there are different perspectives to all kinds of issues and how do we get all these people together to have that conversation in a way that's meaningful for both sides is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a great example of, of yeah, how often we talk past each other. Everyone sort of is saying things that aren't necessarily untrue, but they're never really addressing the other perspective and, you know, the, what's at the heart of those other perspectives. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in your opinion, if there is one thing that people can get right now to address environmental issues, what would that one thing be? Oh, wow. So, okay, I have a few different answers to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, one thing I would say is, um, I guess this is a suite of things, but becoming informed and, and voting um, letting what you know about the environmental challenges that we're facing, and those environmental challenges overlap completely with social challenges. Mm -hmm. So I don't, too often I think they're, they seem to be pitted against, like we have to either care about environment or these social things. And, and it's absolutely, you know, they, they come they together. To absolutely. Right. So becoming informed, you know, about the challenges that we're facing and allowing that to inform one's decisions on a ballot. Um, mm -hmm. I think even, you know, the, the most kind of um, environmentally conscious of, of politicians, they're going to focus on the issues that 
that are going to move votes, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that they feel like their constituents want them to focus on. And, mm -hmm. and um, we, I would like to see more of that pressure. So where you get now, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people care about environment, but it ends up being like, you know, fifth, sixth, and seventh in line of, of issues that they vote on when they go. And, and so, so bumping those, you know, those environmental concerns up and really letting those have a role in one's decisions um, for voting, I think is important. So, and I open with that because I, so I, that, that's not to, to take us off the hook for our own um, individual behavior too. Um, but I do think a lot of the big changes that we're talking about will have to come from policy changes um, that then kind of um, facilitate the types of behavioral changes mm -hmm. that, that we're looking for. Um, that said, I'm, I'm a big, uh, I'm, I'm an incrementalist. So I feel like everyone can do something, right? So uh, for me, I'm, I think it's important um, to my point uh, earlier to not little others for what they're not doing necessarily uh, environmentally. But I think if each of us can try to figure out what's like one extra step I can take this week or this month or whatever. So for example, um, food is probably our closest relationship mm -hmm. to the environment. You know, you can live in the middle of New York City and you're connected to the environment mm -hmm. um, by what you eat. And by, I mean by, the, you know, by a much broader kind of footprint of land sure. by which we're eating. So, so letting, you know, making one switch to a more responsible um, product, whatever that is, um, based on you know whatever one can afford, right? And and then that becomes the norm. That becomes what that product costs you. So mm -hmm. a lot of what we think of as expensive or not expensive of different items, it's sort of it's relative to what we're mm -hmm. used to seeing, right? So for me, I'll just use this as an example. I don't know what a dozen eggs costs from a from a factory farm because right. I just never shop those. So I know what eggs cost that I think are being um, produced, you know, in a more ethical manner, in a more sustainable manner. Um, and so making that little switch along the way, and a lot of the times those, those switches do require, um, you know, more money being shelled out. So I make sure like with my students, that's what, you know, I tell them, I, you know, I get that you're on a, a budget right now mm -hmm. that you're not going to be able to have, your refrigerator is not going to be filled with the most responsible choices um, one could make. And, you know, don't beat yourself up about it, but figure out what you can do, what works, you know, within your budget. Um, and, and food, I think, because it's something that's just so personal to us, I think is a great way to... Oh, yeah. And, and there are all kinds of little things that anybody can do that would have an impact in relationship to the environment. So, for instance, you know, carrying your own shopping bag as opposed to using a plastic bag, or if you have to get a bag from the supermarket to get a paper bag instead of a plastic bag because paper is recyclable, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's interesting that sometimes people don't think that some of the little things that they're doing are making a difference, but there's always something that each of us can do incrementally, right? That costs little to no money really, and sometimes can even save you money. So right, for instance, right. you know, if you're looking to buy new furniture, you know, outside of a bed, I wouldn't recommend buying a used mattress, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but you can almost get anything from a variety of different websites where people are selling something that they've already had, right? As opposed to buying something brand new. And and I could probably go on for days about that kind of stuff because I do that kind of stuff regularly. But I think that's true, yeah. Like I tell my students, every dollar you spend is a vote for whatever had to happen to make, you know, to bring that product or service into being. Mm -hmm. So 
So, you know, vote with your money as well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. There was an interesting study um, where they, they were looking at decreasing power energy consumption in mm -hmm. households. And um, the thing that made the biggest switch was just putting the electric meter, electricity meter, where you could see it from like the kitchen window mm -hmm. and not in kilowatt hours because kilowatt hours aren't particularly meaningful to us. But you put dollars and cents in there, suddenly, you know, without any other instructions about what to do, you saw drastic reductions mm -hmm. because people would see those pennies adding, mm -hmm. you know, by the minute kind of thing. And well, wait, what happens if we turn this off then? Or, um, and suddenly people become more environmentally conscious. So you're right, the, the economics, the finances can actually support the more responsible behavior. So one of the things that most people in American society know a little bit about in relationship to the environment is Earth Day, right? If you went to elementary school, public school somewhere, or um, you watch the news or PBS, somebody's talking about Earth Day right around when it's happening. And depending on what community you live in or what kinds of things you're involved in, you might end up planting a tree or getting a plant as a gift or whatever. So let's talk about why Earth Day is important and, and what's typically encompassed in Earth Day. Yeah, so I tend to view Earth Day kind of like I view you know, Thanksgiving or Mother's Day or Father's Day, right? So, so, you know, on the one hand, every day should be Earth Day, right? It's not like you disrespect your mother 364 days out right. of the year and then appreciate right. her one day. Right. So on the one hand, you know... Some of us would live past that one day, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so we should be paying attention to our relationship with the, you know, with the, the environmental systems that support us, right? All, all of us, so we're breathing air, we're drinking water, um, we need food. We're, we're biological beings at a fundamental level, and and becoming, you know, conscious of that um, is important. So I see Earth Day as just you know setting that time aside to make sure we're emphasizing those connections to maybe reset a little bit. It's so easy to let day to day frustrations or whatever to let these other things kind of um, fill our attention. Um, and then stop thinking about those fundamental connections that we have. And so Earth Day is a chance to, I think, kind of reset, to become more aware, um, that, you know, more aware of those connections, and also more aware of, of possibilities. So often, you know, that kind of Earth Day festivals that you see around are usually filled with really interesting ideas about, or, or, or different, different things to, to buy and to, to um, switch out from what you're already buying or, or different ideas to save energy or save water and that kind of thing. So, so I see it both as sort of conceptual, that kind of like sit, you know, really focus on it, take a moment to, and when you don't make a point to do that other times, to really think about it now. And then it also just becomes that sort of, um, you know, mixing ground for new ideas, practical mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna challenge our listeners and viewers as Earth Day approaches to think about some one thing that they might do that day that they wouldn't typically do that might contribute to the environment. So when I was um, in elementary school, Earth Day was the day that we were not allowed to watch TV. Oh, that's <laughs> like, great. Which didn't bother me because I read books all the time. But <laughs> my siblings, whoo, that was a whole other thing. <laughs> but it also encouraged us to go outside and play, to you know, have a picnic or to grill outside, you know, because 
all the electronics were off. Couldn't watch TV, couldn't listen to the radio, couldn't do any of those things because it was Earth Day. And so that, you know, that was what we did. And I think everybody can do something that could actually become a new habit that would contribute to the environment. So I'm going to kind of challenge our, our listeners and viewers to think about that one thing that they can do on Earth Day that would contribute to our, our environment and to society as a whole. Um, and so now we have entered our speed round section of our discussion today. So the speed round, as I call it, um, is an opportunity to learn more about our guest, um, about a variety of different things. And so I'm just going to throw out a bunch of different questions and you answer them with the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. And I'm going to start with a couple of easy things that you don't have to think about so much, <laughs> okay. okay? So, first one, favorite song. Favorite song. Uh, that was supposed to be easy. I know, that was supposed to be easy. <laughs> I mean, I have musicians that I like. When it's the song, so because I think of the sentiment. Raindrops keep falling on my head, I think, oh, because of the I sentiment of the song yes. would be, if I had to... Say one song, mm -hmm. um, that would probably be it. Okay. I sing that to my son a lot, poorly, but I sing it to my son a lot. <laughs> All right, favorite TV show? Oh, probably The Good Place in terms mm. of like relatively recent uh, mm -hmm. shows. I thought they just did an artful job of like some pretty heady uh, philosophical issues mm -hmm. and in a, in a sort of light, fun, uh, and, and practical uh, way. Okay. Yeah. Favorite movie? The Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> I actually okay. insert um, Big Lebowski references into a lot of my quizzes, and um, <laughs> I'm getting fewer and fewer students who, who recognize them, right. but I get a few, and then, and then we laugh. Okay. Yeah. Favorite place to vacation? Wow, we like to go to, to new places as much as we can. But my wife is from Norway, so oh, wow. um, we do make it back there um, more often than any other place. And, and uh, you know, I get a big kick out of that, especially now I have a four-year-old, so we want to make mm -hmm. sure that he has a sense of those roots as well. Um, so I'd, I'd say Norway. Okay. Um, favorite musician? Probably Tom Waits right now. Mm -hmm. um, maybe Jack Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the two that I listen to a lot uh, these days anyway. Okay. <laughs> Favorite color? Color blue. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, next trip. Next trip. Uh, we are actually in... June, we'll head down to the Keys, Florida Keys, mm. for a week. So, uh, yeah, usually I think we, we pre-kid, we would do more kind of adventure travel. Now we move much more slowly <laughs> with a lot more stuff, too. <laughs> um, so, so I think the Keys is just about the right speed for us for, for this summer. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> All right, past or present, who are three people you would invite to dinner? Pat, so, so not necessarily living. Not necessarily living, okay. no. Um, Peter Matheson is a writer, um, both novelist and does a lot of science writing. Um, fair amount of it is set in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, 
Maya Angelou. Oh, love her. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking of like, I, I see both of them as sort of like our village elders for the yes, country, basically, yes. or the world, you know. Um, Aldo Leopold mm. is a, um, wrote a, several books on, on environment, one called the Sand County Almanac. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like my environmental Bible, uh, I guess. So, uh, mm -hmm. um, all my students get exposed to some bit of Leopold in my classes. Um, so was like three, you asked for, right? I think those would be the yes. three. That would be an mm -hmm. interesting dinner for sure. Oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One last question. Yeah. Um, if you could speak any foreign language fluently, like in this very instant, what would it be? Oh, interesting. Gosh, I, and then like that, and then I would just have that language going yes. forward. So this could get me into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> um, so Norwegian for family reasons would be a wise choice. <laughs> and I speak a little bit of Norwegian now. I probably do better Norwegian than Spanish. Spanish would, would be um, the other language, I think just because of the amount of people that speak mm -hmm. it, both in Florida and uh, you know around the world. Mm -hmm. um, I have been in lots of situations where I wish I spoke better Spanish mm -hmm. than, I, than I do. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to put like an asterisk by Norwegian as well there, just to keep in case any of my family members listen to this, yeah, then that's definitely on the radar as well. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Plate, for joining us on Academically Speaking. We really enjoyed having you and, and listening to your thoughts around environmental studies and interdisciplinary ecology. I think this will be an opportunity for lots of our listeners and viewers to learn more about those subjects. And thank you for being here with us. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having and me. And thank you to our viewers and listeners. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry for Academically Speaking.